My name is Martha. I'm a compulsive overeater and bulimic. Hi. And I would like to thank my lovely friend, Atusa, who is also my recovery sister. We shared the same sponsor for inviting me to come here. I don't think I've ever spoken here. I used to come here when I was new and um, when it was in a different location. And it was this meeting really helped me a lot. Um, really, uh, Saturdays were big eating days for me. And this meeting gave me a really good foundation for my day when I was new and struggling. Um, let's see, I'll just give you some, oh, and also very nice to see my friend Michael and so many familiar Tammy, so many familiar faces. I, I can tell you if you're new or struggling or if you're uncertain if you belong here that just one of the great, incredible gifts of OA um, is that just to be able to walk into a room and whether I know people here or not, I know that people understand. And I know that there's just so many things that I, I could even just start to say that people would immediately understand. Um, you know, just that, that being a prisoner of, of this compulsion to eat, to destroy my body with, with food and for me with also with bulimia. Um, you know, like I, for me when I was new, I had been in, in so much denial about my, my eating disorder and I never told a doctor, I don't think I told anybody ever that I'd, I'd been throwing up for 22 years and binge eating for 22 years. And um, I started when I was 17 and I, my last binge and purge was when I was 39. And I, um, you know, when I first came to these rooms and I heard people talk about, you know, eating, I remember Atusa talking about <laughs> eating, like, what it, what it was, that like 14 chocolate bars or something for her kids' candy sale and not, like, just, just keep going. I mean, I was like that. I could eat, like, a bucket of KFC and a quart of, or a couple of pints of ice cream and just keep going with my day. And I didn't feel great, but it was not the volume of food that I can eat and still keep functioning is um, it's just not something that anybody outside these rooms and the just and the shame and the, the there was the first time I heard when I came to these rooms I heard people talk about calling in fat to life like where you just miss entire miss entire summers because you don't want to wear a bathing suit or shorts or go anywhere um, and just those, those types of things um, so I'll just give you some numbers and describe my absence because I know you guys do that here um, I first came to OA in, I think it was March or April of 2008. Um, I didn't stick around. I stuck around for a few months, uh, got some recovery, lost some weight, stopped throwing up, and thought I was fixed. I was in another program, and I did not want to do two 12-step programs. That just seemed so absurd. Um, <laughs> so, and then I went through six months of hell with the worst that just hit a total bottom in my eating disorder and came back. And so my abstinence date is January 5th of 2009, so I have just over seven years of recovery, and my bottom line abstinence is um, refraining from bulimia, so no throwing up no matter what. And I also follow a food plan. Um, I do three uh, moderate meals and two optional snacks that do not look anything like meals, they're actual snacks. So <laughs> that is, all of that is a miracle. And, um, you know, I have a sponsor. Um, she always knows what's going on in my life. Um, I talk to her regularly. I have sponsees. Um, I have sponsored probably like 50 women in this program. A lot of them haven't stuck around. But, um, you know, one of the things I learned here is that um, compulsive eater A helps compulsive eater B, and compulsive eater A stays abstinent. What happens to compulsive overeater B is not in my control. That's between them and God and their willingness to surrender and do the, do the steps and do the things that I've done here to relieve myself of this just life-destroying, soul-destroying disease. And I take it very, very seriously. Um, 
let's see. I just, uh, we'll just give you a little. Um, until 9:15, right? Sorry. Oh, great. Okay, thank you. So I, uh, I'm also in a recovery, as I mentioned. And for me, I, I know that's a separate program, but for me, those two things went together a lot. But before I ever had um, alcohol, I had food, and I just, um, I grew up in a very uh, chaotic, um, uncertain, like fear-based home, um, and. Just to give you like a little bit of a snapshot, you know, my parents never should have gotten married. Like, my dad is is Yemenite, Israeli, um, and he he never planned to immigrate. I'm from Canada. He never planned to immigrate. He never wanted to have have a family. He's kind of like a self-described mystic, psychic. Like, he lives in another dimension. He he um, he like God bless him and I, I have a really great relationship with him today because of this program but I in my childhood and in my early adulthood I was very disconnected from him he, he uh, lied about his age to join the to join the fight to create the state of Israel in 1948 and he was only 17 and within a few weeks he saw his best friend exploded in front of him in a cave and um, he ended up in a prisoner of war camp in Jordan and he was just a kid and he all of his, his brothers and the other family members just say like something changed and he was never like a really grounded per he just I think he just probably has permanent PTSD and he just has never like held a job he just did not function and he um, yeah like I can relate to him in a way in the sense that I the way I checked out and lived in other dimensions through books and then food and just creating a fantasy life for myself. You know, I think that's kind of my dad did, did a lot of, has done a lot of that as well. He's like 86 now, but, and then my, he randomly ended up in Toronto um, in the 60s, met my mother who was a very tightly wound neurotic British nurse, and then, <laughs> not Jewish. And, uh, Actually, her parents ended up being happier that she married a Jew than a Catholic, so that was interesting. <laughs> but she ended up, you know, marrying him, and, you know, there's this massive culture clash, and they had four kids in five years and no money, and neither of them have a lot of, you know, adulting skills. And we just, like, moved around Canada, and, like, we squatted in some Israeli guy's empty apartment building for a while, and we were in and out of schools, and, you know, um, it was just very... Uh, Unstable, and and they, my parents were also very like health food, and everything was like mung beans and lentils, and like it was you know if there had been like better food, I'm sure I would have been a fat kid, <laughs> but it was like health food and not that much of it. Um, and then I, so for me, I just remember like some of my most vivid memories of childhood were like if I had an ice cream cone, like it would. There was the dream of coming up on it and eating it and would there be more and like every little treat or going to other kids' birthday parties like at McDonald's or something. It was just like this fantasy around food. And I knew early on that food just fixed something in me that needed fixing. Um, that feeling of just being able to stuff my face whenever that was an opportunity was just so comforting. And I started like um, obsessing about my body. I remember like getting my mother's tape measure out of her sewing kit when I was like nine and measuring my thighs and writing it down. And I had like a, you know, like a little different body type from a lot of people. My, my family's very like lean. Everybody's like tiny people. And I just felt so uncomfortable. And then I 
started like as soon as I had a job I started delivering papers when I was like 11 and then I got a job at McDonald's when I was like 14 I just would like use any opportunity to stuff my face and then obsess about getting fat and then you know like <coughs> measure myself and try to do all these exercises bless you um, and then I I discovered bulimia I mean I'd read about it in like young adult novels and you know like TV movies and stuff and then I just I think I tried a couple of times and didn't succeed and then when I was 17 I went away to uh, a, board, a residential school that was called the United World College. That was this incredible opportunity to live with students from all over the world um, in, out in the forest on Vancouver Island and do all these activities and have this intense academic program. It was a huge honor to be chosen for that scholarship. And, and that had been my whole plan my whole life was just to get away from the crazy family that, that just like where everything was like weird secrets and lies about like why my dad wasn't working and why we didn't have furniture in our house and why the electricity was off and why we were moving again and it was just like I just couldn't process it or I didn't have a way to make it make sense so I just was checked out or like living in I'm going to be this I was really good in school and a great great reader and teachers liked me and I was just going to like win things and get away and so I did that and then at that school it was like just unlimited starchy cafeteria food and that set me off and I think I gained like 25 pounds and probably went there weighing about 120 and I remember it was like I've been there a couple months and I weighed 145 pounds and I'm, I have a very small frame and I had like stretch marks everywhere and I just knew that had to stop but I also knew I couldn't stop eating because that was doing something really important for me just getting rid of that constant like comparing myself to others and like <clears throat> feeling so uncomfortable and like why okay I have I won this incredible educational opportunity and I can go anywhere in the world but I still feel like a loser people are going to find out that I, I shouldn't have won this and I, I so I, I figured out how to throw up you know by studying books and stuff and then I just became the super stealth vomiter I was really proud of how <laughs> how quickly and efficiently I could vomit and I knew all the bulimic bathrooms where the doors go down to the bottom of the floor so nobody can see what you're doing and I just did that and I you know lost weight and felt better and I continued to do that on and off like but in my head I wasn't really bulimic because I just felt like I could stop when I wanted to in my head it was like just a strategy um, like a system that other people didn't have the advantage of having or something I don't know it, it was weird um, but I, I knew that there was something weird about the way I ate too because I could see people's faces when they watched me eating sometimes and I would have to I actually still struggle with trying to eat at a normal pace um, but I, you know I have tools for that, that today and you know that went on for me um, God, for you know a decade of like kind of like I'd have years that were really messed up and then years that were better and like I, you know I'm, I think a lot of us were just great starters like I can get really into a fitness program and really into like a healthy eating program and like just get you know get my act together feel better lose weight um, and then like think everything's fixed and then I'll be like blinded why six months later I'm back in the same thing of having like an 8,000 calorie binge and finding all the secret bulimic bathrooms like just it, it, and I spent a, I can tell you I spent a lot of time going to like therapists and coaches and personal trainers and you know there always had to be a solution um, and then for me what happened was um, as long as things 
like, as long as I, I had this idea that I could fix up my life and make it look the way I wanted, I could kind of get along. Like, you know, I ended up getting a scholarship to an Ivy League school and then getting into all these PhD programs. And, you know, I had this whole vision of how my life was going to turn out as this, like, superstar academic who also wrote best-selling novels but also had a lot of leisure time. <laughs> and, like, um, and I was going to live in a – I had a very um, – my, my college boyfriend was the junior tri-state Scrabble champion. And, he, that's, and he's, like – he's now, like, a very prominent linguist, and he's, like, on NPR and CNN and stuff. But we were, like, super nerds at Yale together, and we were going to have this restored Victorian home full of, like, Persian rugs and, and library bookcases with those rolling ladders and, like, a series of little intellectual children, and we would perform scenes from Shakespeare in front of the fireplace. So none of that happened. Because, <laughs> like, um, like, basically, you know, part of my disease, like, obviously the disease of perception, but it's just the inability to deal with life on life's terms. Like, everybody has setbacks. Everybody has problems. I like to have all the rewards and accolades with none of the hard work. And it, I need to know what's going to happen. I don't, I don't like uncertainty. I don't like pain. I don't like disappointment. It's not that I don't like them. It's I can't even handle them. Like, I just leave and quit. So I just quit everything. Like I, I mean, I graduated and I started a PhD, quit that, um, or went on an extended leave of absence. I had like a, an initially initial quite successful corporate career back in Vancouver where I grew up. Went back there. Things got messy and complicated with the company I worked for. Quit that. Um, you know, bought a beautiful condo near the ocean that's probably worth like six hundred thousand dollars now. Building had problems. I didn't want to deal with it. You know, got rid of it. Lost money. Lost. I really identify with Bill's story in the big book because I was very heavily invested in tech stocks and thought I was a genius in like 2000 and then lost my small fortune and then just started drinking and drinking and hiding and and what I did and then, and then that my disease really took off. This was like in the late 90s, early, like early 2000s. And for me, like what I did my whole life and I struggle with this in a different way now and it, I've, it's, it's, I have a lot of freedom from this but I would maintain like this facade so that things looked okay from the outside and and that you know I didn't lose too many friends in my diseases and I um I would just try to keep things looking functional so that people would would think things were okay I, I remember some, hearing somebody in a share once saying I would rather be envied than loved and I felt like that I just wanted people to envy me I didn't really care so it was like if you imagine like a beautiful a home with a beautiful exterior, but inside the whole thing is rotting and the wiring is shot and the plumbing is full of lead and, you know, if you look up close, the paint is all peeling. That was my life. It was like, from a distance, you'd be like, oh, what a beautiful home. And then the whole, my whole insides were just like rotting out with secrets and lies and fear and failure and like this increasing sense of helplessness. And, um, me accelerate into recovery. A whole series of events brought me, I ended up coming down here for the man I fell in love with um, to be a mom to his little step, my, my stepdaughters. Um, and I was going to solve all my problems by saving that family because his, his wife had been killed by a drunk driver and I was a closet alcoholic. And, um, but I, you know, I could fix all that myself <laughs> using my own tools. <laughs> and, you know, I went to AA, I got sober, I ended up but I got sober for them, not for me. I ended up getting um, diagnosed with breast cancer right after I moved here. I had this year of like like nightmare hell, uncertainty, um, like complications, all these surgeries, like very heavy chemotherapy, being like bald, no eyebrows, no eyelashes, like 
experimental treatments. Like just, it was absolutely horrible. And I, I was, I always tell people this because it really exemplifies how insane my disease was. I was taking anti-nausea medication and trying to do this cancer diet program, but I was also binging and purging at the same time. And that just like, I also just like never understood why you would not want to throw up. So I didn't even really understand that <laughs> anti-nausea medication. And then um, I ended up, that whole thing just crashed and burned. It was nothing was sustainable. It was just self-will run riot of like trying to think that I like who was so sick with with alcoholism and my eating disorder and and God, God bless those, those little girls are now teenagers and I have a relationship with to them today and I've made amends to my ex-husband and all of that those things have been healed through the tools of this program but um, at the time I was trying to do like I would make these like rainbow lunches for the kids with like you know like the vegetables would be like eyes you know to happy faces and I was teaching them about nutrition but I'd be like dropping them off at school and then going and and like doing an 8,000 calorie binge and throwing up five times you know like it but none of that in my head was I just felt like well I can stop it you know and um and I, I still have a terrible memory of um like Matt, Maddie was maybe five and she it was one of those parties where I was like a oh, kids party where I was like oh it's a drop off party I can go I knew I had to binge and she didn't she wanted me to stay and you could parents could stay or leave and I remember she was holding my hand and crying and I like ripped my hand away because I, I had to go it was not a choice I did not have a choice about my food behavior and I still like sometimes get I, I can't those are the types of things I did around my disease in 2006, um, sorry, in June 2007, when everything crashed and burned, and I um, tried to, my my husband wanted to um, send me back to Canada, and you know I had relapsed a couple of times, and he was worried that I would endanger his children, and then I ended up in a lockdown psych unit, I ended up in a rehab, and I got some help with my eating disorder, and my and I got sober, and that is still my sobriety date, but I. Um, I was so not surrendered around my, my food. I totally surrendered to AA and I started doing the steps and I got freedom, but my AA sponsor ended up saying, she said, you know, if you keep eating, the, if you keep throwing up the way you are, because she could see me just completely check out in meetings. Um, and you know, some of these AA meetings are just full of donuts. And that is, um, you know, it, I, whatever, it was not working. I went to, I also just felt so much resentment. I couldn't understand why I had to do all this work and all this, you know, I had done all these amends and I was doing everything to stay sober. And why could I not stop throwing up? Or why could I not stop with this binge eating? Um, I, so like I was saying before, I came to um, AA, I mean, came to OA, got some immediate relief, thought I was fixed, left, and then just completely and utterly bottomed out. Um, what, what ended up bringing me back um, to OA was I ran into um, Michael D., who is now my my future husband but he he I had met him when he was like over 300 pounds at the light a candle meeting and I had um, like made fun of him to a friend of mine and then um, I left away he stayed and then when I had gone through six months of like just the worst you know throwing up in filthy fast food bathrooms spending like $1,200 a month on binge food because I'd been to OA, got the relief, and then it was like when I went back in my disease, it was so, had progressed so far. 
when I saw him in a Whole Foods bathroom on January 4th of 2009 and he'd like lost all the weight and had a, uh, a Whole Foods bag full of like produce and stuff and I had like a secret binge bag. I'd gone in to buy healthy food but that's not within my power. My disease bought the food for me and um, I was like going to go you know throw up and I saw him and he like just radiated like I just was like I want to like feel how he looks you know. And I went back to OA the next day, and I stayed. And I just, like, that was a moment of grace from God that I don't know how that came about. And it was very, very hard. Like, the first couple of years, you know, I was depressed a lot. And it was, I really struggled with, for me, what happened is I was so surrendered that that compulsion to vomit was gone. And I can't explain that. Like, I don't know how you can have this behavior that controls you for 22 years and then it's removed except for God like that's that's what it has to be and um but I definitely struggled with like changing my food behaviors and I, I had like you know I started just to do everything my sponsor told me to do I was going to five AA meetings and three OA meetings and my AA meetings I'm in Pacific Group they're long it was like 15 hours a week of meetings probably and working full-time and trying to do financial amends and you know, rebuild my life, and um, I was also, you know, like, taking calls and calling newcomers, and I started sponsoring people when I had maybe, like, five months or something, and, um, like, just doing specific step work around my food and praying and emailing my food every day. It just just was, like, so much work, but it was... um, I started to have these, like, experiences of total freedom. Like, I work in an office where... People are always bringing in, like, donuts and homemade cookies, and, you know, we get gifts from clients all the time. And I'd be in a room like that and just be, like, like I was protected from it. And I would know what I was eating that day, and I would feel really good about it. And I got, um, you know, just started to get really, really healthy. And, um, you know, I had to do a lot of food-related amends for, like, food that I stole. And, and just the way that my complete being completely checked out had affected other people. And um, and I started to like just shift my my thinking about um, the, to me that it had felt like this kind of like punishment that I have to go to two programs and do all this extra work. And what I ended up finding out, it just became such a gift. Like all these things, all these things that seem like they're the worst thing can end up being the best thing. Because for me, what I found out is so many women in AA suffer from eating disorders. And that, because of the way I, I usually share a little bit about it, I just say, you know, this is what happened to me. I got sober and my my eating disorder took off. And then um, I, I've been able to bring so many women into these rooms from my other program who just, like, had never heard anybody stand up and talk about, you know, vomiting into plastic bags in, in a car. I don't want to end on the bonnet in plastic bags in the car. <laughs> um, I will just say, like... Everything that I, and you know, I found Michael here, and we have a, a, a life in recovery together. Like, all of these, nothing has turned out the way I would have, like, imagined it. I still don't have a restored Victorian home, but everything, <laughs> everything is, is like, the things that seem like the worst things are usually the best things, and there's just a level of freedom and joy here that I really wish for all of you to be able to experience and I'm so so grateful to be a member of this fellowship and um, thank you for allowing me to share
This is a time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. You can come and share with me after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. We are being recorded. Please remember if you ask, oh, thank you. If you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Um, okay. So, any questions? Hi. Hi, thank you for your week. You mentioned that you um, have tools around uh, eating at a moderate pace. Can you tell me that? Oh, sure. So the question, repeat the question, right? The question was that I have some tools for eating at a moderate pace. Um, what are those? One thing my sponsor taught me that seemed really stupid, but it actually works, um, is like to, she said, never put anything in your mouth without saying a little prayer first. And, um, and then when I finished eating to say, thank you, God, let this be enough. And when I do, do that, it's amazing. The other thing, I mean, I, I also try to eat with people when possible because I ate alone so much and, and not eat in my car because I was a really big, um, like, drunk eating kind of car, like, stuffing my face in my car. And, um, and then just, like, ask, even asking for help. Like, you know, my partner's my fiance's also in OA, but, like, we try to help each other because we have that. And, or even with a friend who's not, doesn't have that problem, I'll say something about, like, I'll make a little joke about it, but, like, I'm going to try to eat this slowly. I'm, like, putting down my fork and, well, actually eating with a fork and knife. <laughs> also, two very practical tools. So, um, it's very imperfect, but I know, I think that if I can say one thing, the biggest miracle is that, that like, there aren't mysteries anymore. Like, I don't, I don't feel like I'm a prisoner of these behaviors. Like, literally every problem I have around food and eating and body weight has a solution. Um, and, and I listen to people and I ask people. And I love, you know, I love listening to speakers and learning from other people. So I hope that helps. Any other questions? I think so. Thank you so much. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you practice self-forgiveness and how you practice not going around and around in your head about how things could have been or should have been or how you could have done things differently, particularly regarding your... Um, dropping out of the PhD program or, you know, stuff with your ex-husband. How, how did you get over that? Okay. That's a great question. So the question was about practicing self-forgiveness and not getting stuck in a lot of regrets about things that I damaged in the past or, or opportunities that I destroyed. You know, I, I, that is, um, I don't know how it's phrased, but that, you know that is one of the promises is we do not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. And there's this, God, there's this passage, and it's in the family afterward, I think. It's like a weird, one of those chapters that you don't really think about very much. But, and this, I'm paraphrasing, but it says something like, in God's hands, my dark past is my greatest possession. It's the, key, the gateway to freedom and happiness for others. And I found that to really to be the case. And people told me that, too, because I had relapsed so many times in AA and you know, it was, it was like the fourth or fifth relapse that destroyed my marriage, not the first one. And I, I just, somebody like just told me, you know, you get here when you, and the same in OA too, like why didn't I stay the first time I came? It's like, like there is somebody in, in, in this program that, that God needs me to help and I needed to have this specific experience 
to be able to help that person. And if, if it had worked differently for me and if I had not destroyed my marriage or if I had not had those six months of terrible hell in my eating disorder, like then there'd be somebody else that I couldn't, that, I, that that person might not be reached. Like there's somebody out there binging right now who needs, who will only be able to, um, like my story will specifically help them. So that, I don't know, that really helps me. And then I think just, um, you know, my, this is what my, my sponsor also says about things like relationships, like, uh, or like jobs or whatever. But if you're meant to be in that career or if you're meant to be with that person, nothing can stop you. Like, you, nothing will stop it. Like, you can punch the person in the head and throw their TV out the window, but you'll still end up with them if you're meant to end up with them. And so I feel like God has, and she's, I have felt very stuck in my job sometimes and thought about, like, you know, what, where's all my published books and stuff. But, um, like, you know, sloth has a lot to do with that. <laughs> it's she just is, is like grow where you're planted. What are you, God has you in this job at this company right now? What um, you know? What, what why don't you see what God wants you to do there, and then God will take you to the next step. So I don't know. I just I think that 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 stuff has really helped me a lot. Not to mention the fact that the random, seemingly stupid, meaningless job I ended up in has turned into a career that has a lot of really rewarding things about it and that company like sponsored my green card and paid my legal fees and you know I'll be able to vote not this election but next election so um, there's always a plan and a path I think yeah hi um, yeah the question was about my 11th step and 11th step practice um, that has kind of um, changed at different times like my the practice that works best for me um, is has been like get on my knees the second I wake up because it's too if I don't start my like a morning spiritual routine right away I'm like lost in the day like my coffee doesn't taste right and like where's this where's that I gotta leave I'm running late so I try to do anywhere from like five to fifteen minutes in the morning of like just prayer on my knees. I have like a little basket that has about five or six daily readers, so I read maybe like two or three of them if I have time. Or I read the On Awakening from the big book, which I just think is such a beautiful, um, just a beautiful passage. And then I write a little bit like a, um, just a gratitude list or like um, some intentions for the day or like kind of like talk to God in my writing. And then I usually make some calls make or return calls on my drive-in to work. Um, that works really well. I don't really do a lot at night. I used to, sometimes I write a tenth step, but I'm not out of the habit of it, but I know that really helps. And then one thing I heard somebody, I try to do this, especially when I'm having a bad time. Um, I heard somebody share this. I think it, the woman was, uh, someone, one of our fellows who was trying, she was getting ready to pass the bar exam. And she was so caught up in, in obsession over failure and fear and everything. But she set a timer on her computer like on the hour and she had to stop on the hour and say a little prayer and I've done that sometimes though because it's way too easy for me to do my morning routine feel clean and spiritual and then it's like break and then into the day and like where's this where's that this person's annoying you know like just it's so I just try to find some ways to stay connected through the day like make a couple of phone calls and things anything like I keep a lot of um I have a da- one of the daily readers on my phone, and then I have printouts of things I like to read in my desk at work as well. So I hope that helps. Hi. Um, the question was, how do I sponsor? So I um, I just sponsor people the way I was sponsored. Um, I was it was like 
going to a meeting every day, um, being accountable for my what I was doing for the day, being accountable for my food, um, making my sponsor had me do three to five outreach calls every day, not including her, and um, and do my step work as a sign, like don't sit on my step work forever, and have do commit a big thing in our chain of sponsorship as a T will say is like we have committed my sponsor has been going to like the same four or five meetings for like 25 years <laughs> and has has a commitment at every meeting and that's what we do that's what I'm trained to do if you don't have a commitment at the meeting you're kind of a tourist or if you go to like random meetings on random days it's not the same experience as being a part of the success of a meeting by going to the same meeting regularly and having a service commitment there it's like uh, love and service is the core of the program. We, you know, we're just doing what I'm doing, what I'm asked to do, and that's kind of what I try to pass on. I, I, I'm not. Um, I'm definitely a bit of a tough love sponsor because that's what worked for me, and that I don't. I don't think it's. I'm doing anyone any favors by indulging, um, doing a lot of like right affirmations on your mirror and like. <laughs> um, I I don't believe this. You know, this is the way I was taught. Is I don't believe in the like. Um, that this is a, a program of self-help or learning to love yourself. Like this is a pro- we are people who suffer from extreme self-obsession and selfishness. And I learned to love myself. I learned self-esteem by performing esteemable actions, and I learned to love myself by loving others and not obsessing about myself. Um, so that's kind of the way I've been trained. So I hope, hope that helps. Cool. Thank you, Martha. Um, so you talked about sloth. <laughs> No, I'm just thinking somebody you know like you that just works so hard and has all this academic stuff, and um, but I suffer from sloth, especially my job now. I'm asked to do something new, and I'm just full of fear. Mm-hmm. And here I move at half speed, if, 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 if at all. So, do you experience that? And how would you use program to? Um, okay, yeah, the question was about suffering from sloth and how you get get through not wanting to do things <laughs> and fear. Yeah, um, and and our questioner was under the mistaken impression that I'm hardworking. <laughs> um, no, I think, you know, that... I think that I have imperfectly worked six and seven, and that one of my biggest character defects is fear-based procrastination. I don't... Like, who, who cares if it's sloth or not? Because it's like, am I really lazy or am I just paralyzed by fear? And for me, a lot of it is wrapped up in perfection cause, and wanting to know the results. Like, okay, I want to, um, you know, do this big project and, and do this, like, content system for my company's website. But I, I, I don't want any uncertainty about how it's going to turn out, and I don't want it to not be as good as I want it to be, so why start? You know, that's what, what I do with a lot of things in my life. And... Um, I I think like sometimes I I try to just get a lot of sponsor direction around it and a, a lot of the times it's just um, I use timers a lot because it, it uh, just get started. Um, oh, okay. A huge part of it for me is like just getting started and then um, and I do I do my sponsor has this. I'm sure it's not my sponsor particularly, but a program tool I learned that's very helpful is called bookending. So, um, so with a friend of mine who also has some challenges around sloth and procrastination, I'll be like, okay, I'm going to do 
this action by, you know, 10 a.m. and then I'm going to text you when it's done. And we just have like a text check-in system. And then sometimes it's just like set a timer for five minutes and get started on it. A lot of times it's just the fear of getting started. And then a, a huge part of it too for me is like, I'll create a lot of unmanageable goals. Like I'll have a list of 15 things I'm going to do that it's nobody can do those 15 things. And you don't need to do them. You can do like one, two things and it would still be a successful day. Um, and and uh, and then I think just like working six and seven around around my procrastination is it's it's but I, I do it very imperfectly because a lot of times I choose safety over risk and um, it's definitely something I, I seek help with. So I hope that helps. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, great question. The question was about what was my relationship with God before coming into the program and um, afterwards and, and how that's changed. That's, God, you know, like I think I always, I love the thing, the big book thing that says deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. I definitely had that. And I went to Jewish school, to religious school for, you know, until I was eight. And I loved reading about God and learning about God. And, um, Oh, that just gave me a flashback to my eye doctor's office had all these like Christian magazines <laughs> and they would have all these stories about Jesus and the children. And, and I was in my head, I was like, that Jesus must be related to God because this sounds really similar to. <laughs> anyway, I, I just, I, that stuff was always kind of like, not, it touched something inside me and it made me feel like safe. But then, you know, when I, I had some terrible experiences, you know, with all this stuff with my family and I was, um, you know, I was like raped when I was in college by and had to go to it was I had some really horrible, terrifying experiences. And then, you know, when I learned about human suffering and the Holocaust and all these things, it was I often it was just hard for me to really believe that it was real or it would seem real and then it would go away. But whenever I was in deep terror, I would pray. I prayed about my cancer, and and then. But then I also just felt like God was constantly disappointing me. So it was just, it was a very like unresolved, uncertain, like not very strong. And I definitely did not get the AA idea, um, you know, the twelve step idea that there's a personal God that's taking care of me. That didn't make any sense, and I did not believe that was real. But then what happened is um, there there were just too many miracles not to believe, and like I could not explain how that compulsion to drink and that compulsion to, to binge and vomit was like removed. And that, that was like all the evidence I needed. And also I would do these little, I think it was a Sandy Beach speaker CD where he talked about doing these little like little experiments where, you know, I'm suffering, I'm in fear. I just try it for like an hour. Like God, take this hour and see what you can do with it and, and keep talking. And then it, it has never not worked. And it has never, it doesn't work in the way that I think it should, but it works in a different way. And um, I think like just through doing those things and practicing, I, I love the idea that it's a, kind of like a scientific experiment that you can set it up and, and do it and see what the results are. Um, it's gotten like, so much stronger. It's still not totally consistent, but it's like I, I don't have entire days where I doubt that there's a God. And I do have a lot of times I do feel that personal, like deep personal connection with God. And I feel I feel taken care of. Um, and that's that is a, just a gift beyond measure. So, do we have time for? Uh, no. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, thank you for sharing. Sure. How do you, uh, when you talk about the approach your program or sponsoring a little bit with tough love, uh-huh. and it sounds like you know, you're confronting the character defects pretty head on. How do you uh, not let that slip into self-hatred? Oh, that's a good question. How do I not let sort of tough love and facing my defects slip into self-hatred? Because... I think self-hatred is incompatible with a relationship with God. Like, God forgives us all. He, he cannot help but forgive us all. That is the nature of God. And that, if that's in my head, like, God loves, would love me if I did nothing for the rest of my life. I'm still a perfect child of God. And that, and that helps me. Thank you.